This morning, I want to pick up a quote. I want to pick up a phrase that I briefly referred to last week, and I am referring to the hand of God. The hand of God is all over Scripture, but it's highlighted in a special way in the book of Ezra. And this is the last sermon on the book of Ezra that we'll be having, and next Sunday, we're going to shift our attention to the book of Nehemiah. So our scripture this morning comes from Ezra chapter 8, verses 15 to 32. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And the scripture will be on the screen behind me and on your screens at home. I'm going to ask if you would read together in one voice, beginning Ezra 8, verse 15, all the way down to 32. Let's read together. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, And we camped there three days. And when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elphan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Jehoirib, and Elnathan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Ido the leader in Casiphia. I told them what to say to Ido and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Casiphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers. 18 in all, and Hashabiah, together with Jesaiah from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. There, by the Hava Canal, I proclaimed a fast, so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord, The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, 
before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. And on the 12th day of the first month, we set out from Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. And so we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. Great reading. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Ezra chapter 8. And I pray that you would teach us about your hand, that the hand of the Lord would be upon each and every one of us, that the hand of the Lord would be upon this church. Lord, we do not want to deviate from your path. We want to be at the center of your will and of your plan. So Lord, would you protect us from going to the left and to the right? Would you protect us from the enemies and the bandits of our life that would want to derail us from your plan? And place your hand upon us that we may follow your promptings, that we may be obedient to your leading and do everything that you've called us to do to, to, until we finish till the very end. So Father, I thank you for your presence this morning. May your hand be upon me as I preach the word of God to your people. May they hear your voice and obey it, O oh God. May they hear your word and believe it. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us that we might be your people, that we would go and do what you've called us to do and accomplish all the great things because all of us are on a journey. We're on a pilgrimage to the land where you live, Lord. We're heaven bound and we're journeying through this life as sojourners. I pray that you lead us all the way to the end. You never leave and you never forsake us as we sung today. And so we're confident in your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Just imagine with me today that you're about to commence on a great, long journey. What do you do? Do you stop to pray before you depart? If so, what exactly do you pray about? You might ask God to go ahead of you. You might ask God to bring you to your destination safely. You might ask God to protect you and your family from harm and danger along the way. These are prayers we can pray. And by praying this way, we are ultimately asking God to place his hand on us in a special way. The criticism of this type of prayer is that it can often become superstitious instead of sincere. Looking forward, we might believe that it is impossible for our car to break down or for us to ever get in an accident because we did pray. Looking backward with hindsight, we might blame our car for breaking down or ourselves for getting into an accident because we didn't pray. Some people also have grown to pray the will of God over matters. Lord, if it is your will, Lord, I will make it from point A to point B. And the criticism of this type of prayer is that we approach God as if he is undecided and ambiguous when it comes to his will. The critic would believe that God has already defined his good and his pleasing and his perfect will to those who believe. But the rebuttal is that this if prayer was a prayer that Jesus prayed. I want to take you to that prayer in Matthew 26, 39, 
where we read, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, and catch this today, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But there's another word that we need to capture here. Not just if, yet. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. See, the if statement was followed by a yet statement. And that means that we need to make room in our mind. We need to make room in our heart not to get angry with God if our if statement does not come to pass. And we need to accept the yets in our lives. Our will must bend to God's will. I think both prayers are valid prayers before the Lord. And God does not listen to one of those prayers with greater attentiveness than to others. And it might be better for believers today to learn how to obey the Apostle Paul's instruction in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, where the scripture says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert, always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Or we could do what the Apostle Paul instructed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, where it says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This way... Our prayer life is not merely situational. You know, sometimes I think we find ourselves where our prayer life really only comes alive when we're hard-pressed in difficult scenario or circumstance. And that is when we activate our prayer life. It's situational prayer. But we must pray for the hand of the Lord to be upon us as we commence our journey, as we continue our journey, and until we conclude our journey. Amen? Because we also need to know when it is a time to stop what we're doing and set apart time to have concentrated prayer. Whether it is through continual prayer or concentrated prayer, all we want is for God's hand to be upon us in our journey. This morning, I want you to see how the hand of the Lord was at work in Ezra's life and in Ezra's ministry and the returnee's journey from Ahava all the way to Jerusalem. First point I want to share with you this morning is that the hand of the Lord created greater accountability. The hand of the Lord created greater accountability. And let me refresh the scripture to you, verses 15 to 20. The scripture says, I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. And when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshullam, who were leaders, and Jehoiarib, and Elnathan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Ido, the leader in Casiphia. And I told them what to say to Ido and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Casiphia, so that they might bring attendance for us to the house, for the house of our God. And because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all, and Hashabiah together with Jeshaiah, Jeshaiah from the descendants of Merai, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. 
And they also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. As Ezra assembled the second wave of returnees to Jerusalem, he realized that there was a need for greater accountability. And there were two levels of accountability that we can see here in the text. The first level of accountability was that Ezra was accountable for the people. When the hand of the Lord is upon you, you see people who you might have missed. Ezra realized that he had priests, but what he was missing were the Levites. And now we might think that those two roles are synonymous, but they are really not. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The priests offered spiritual care for the people through sacrifices and offerings on their behalf, while the Levites, they offered physical care and maintenance of the tabernacle and of the temple of the Lord. These roles were ordained by God, and they had separate job descriptions. Ezra empowered men who were leaders and men of learning, to seek out Levites from this large group of Levites living in the city called Kasifia, which is present-day northwestern Iran. And we read that the search was successful. Why? Because Ezra understood that the hand of the Lord was on them, that you would be successful in life. You'll be successful in what you do if the hand of the Lord is upon you. And this was credited to Ezra's leadership But this was moreover credited to God's lordship, that God was lord of their lives. And the Lord's hand specifically collected Sherebiah with his sons and his brothers, and Heshebiah and Jeshebiah, his brothers and their nephews. And the hand of the Lord, there he is, he's handpicking people. He handpicked 38 Levites and in addition, 220 temple servants. The second level of accountability, though, was that Ezra was accountable for the temple articles that were generously given and free will offerings that were collected. He was accountable, first and foremost, to King Artaxerxes, who was in charge in governing the land at whose command they were allowed to go. King Artaxerxes and all of his officials, they would have to give report. He was also accountable to the Jews that had contributed to this free will offering from all over the trans-Euphrates province of Persia. And upon arrival in Jerusalem, we are reminded in Ezra 8, 26 to 27 of what they had actually been carrying with them. And the scripture says, I weighed out of them, I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles, Weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. And let me just help you understand the weightiness of all of this. Let me help you understand the enormity of this wealth that one talent monetarily represented 20 years of work at minimum wage. That's a lot. So you can think, multiply that by the hundreds and so on. In verse 26 to 27, Ezra was the one who weighed them out. And then in verse 29 to 30, the priests and the Levites also weighed them out. 
This ensured that Ezra, the trustee, and the priests and the Levites, the guardians, did not skim from the bottom or the top or steal and keep any for themselves. He had to be very transparent about the finances. Hence, they were weighed upon exit from Ahava and weighed upon entry into Jerusalem. And so what, what is all this accountability all about? Do you want the hand of God to be upon you? If so, you need to expect the levels of accountability in your life and your leadership to increase. And let me just say this to you today. Accountability is not bad. So many of us have a thwarted view, a wrong view, a messed up view as to what accountability is. Accountability is actually for your safety. And accountability is also for the safety of the other person, the safety of an organization, the safety of a church. And that's why we become transparent with each other so that there's no wrongdoing, so there's no evil among us. And so choose to be accountable. Actually, ch uh, chase after being held accountable. It's actually for your betterment. It's for your good and for your safety. Secondly, today, the hand of the Lord ensured their safety. We see this in verse 21 to 23, where it says, There by the Havoc Canal, I proclaimed a fast, so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And I love this. And he answered our prayer. Do you see that today? That when you fast and when you pray, you serve a God who answers your prayers. See, Ezra did not just pray. He proclaimed also a fast. And fasting is not something that Christians are very fond of. It's not something we're very inclined to do because we love food. We do. Just say it. We do. And we learn of a strategic purpose behind Ezra's call to have a fast. See, fasting is not only for an individual, but it is often for the collective. Why? Because it is part of a discerning process, discerning God's direction for our lives. Fasting is also a sign of humility before God. It is a sign that we are totally dependent, not on ourselves, but totally dependent on him, on his hand for provision in our lives. Fasting is also a time set apart for prayer. And it is not about the avoidance of food. I understand food is a part, has a part to play in fasting, but it's not all about fasting. It is a, not about the avoidance of food, but the increased appetite for God through prayer. My question to you today is, have you experienced the power of fasting? When was the last time you fasted a meal or fasted for a period of time? Because if not, perhaps we are not as humble as we may think. The brother of Jesus, he said in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Notice that it is God who promises to lift us up. How does God do that? How does he lift us up? With his hand, of course. 
The Apostle Peter, he said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. We humble ourselves under his mighty hand so that he can lift us up with that same mighty hand. The Hava Canal was upriver on the Euphrates River from Babylon proper. And the people were traveling by foot with adults and children and all these possessions. And Ezra was so well aware that there could be danger on the road. This is not like driving on the 401, okay? This is not like walking in your neighborhood down the street, walking down King Street. This is different. There were enemies who were ethnically and nationally opposed to the Jews. They were a personal threat to their safety. And then there were enemies, but there were also bandits on the road. And these bandits were people who didn't care about who you were, but what you had and intended to steal possessions from everyone and anyone. And this was this general threat if you're traveling in the land. And as you journey through life, friends, there will be personal enemies. And there will be random bandits all along the way. But continue to move forward, knowing that the hand of the Lord is on you. As it is written in Psalm 121, Verses 7 to 8, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. And the people of God said, amen. See, Ezra admitted in humility that he was ashamed to ask for the king's help to send soldiers and horses because he had actually already boasted about how gracious the hand of the Lord was. To paraphrase Ezra, he said, if we look to God, his hand will be upon us. But if we do not look to God, his hand will be taken off from us. And the question is whether we will live out that which we say we believe. Do we simply know the right answers about God? Or do we step out in faith knowing whom we've believed in? That he has a mighty right hand. Our faith needs to move from talking to walking. See, they could have fasted. They could have petitioned, uh, petitioned God for hours and yet still feared. But that is not what we see here. And this is a beautiful case study of what it means to follow God. And Ezra is a great example to follow. They fasted, they petitioned, and God answered. That when you fast and when you pray, I believe God will answer you. And God can only answer you you exercise your faith and you take a step of faith trusting that his hand is upon you. May God's hand be upon you wherever you go. May you not be shaken. May his hand never depart from your life. May it continually rest upon you all the days of your life. Thirdly, today, the hand of the Lord brought them home. Here's the good news. Verse 31 to 32. And on the 12th day of the first month, we set out from the Havoc Canal to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us. And he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. Here we find Ezra teaching us that at the end of the journey, 
we must take a moment to look back and see how far God has brought us. The Jewish returnees, they may have been focused on being reunited with their family members and with their friends. They might have been excited to find and settle into their new home or see the new temple with their very own eyes for the first time. But Ezra's summary tells us that they needed to stop and take note of God's faithfulness. Now, looking back can often bring back all those painful memories or the struggles we faced along the way. But this spiritual reflection is important for our meaning-making that reaffirms things that we have been tried and proven to be true. We must see how far we really come. In regards to distance, think about this. They had traveled approximately 2,700 kilometers. In regards to time, they had traveled for four months. In regards to context, they had moved from Babylon all the way back to their home in Jerusalem. In regards to status, they were no longer exiles or slaves, but they were free people. And God's hand had been upon them from the very beginning until the very end. And out of such reflections come testimonies. Testimonies that give credit and ascribe glory to the Lord our God. And I want you to notice the way Ezra used the past tense when he was writing here. He said, his hand was on us. He protected us. We arrived and we rested. All past tense. And the idea is that God did it and they received it. What past tense words can you use to describe the finished work of God on your behalf? Think about that for a moment. What words would you use? What past tense words to describe what God has done for you? The psalmist encouraged us to testify of the result that comes from the hand of God resting upon us. In Psalm 103, 1 to 5, you might know this psalm. It often says, bless the Lord, but in this translation of the NIV, it says, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his name, holy name, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and he crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. There are spiritual benefits and physical benefits and emotional benefits and relational benefits and provisional benefits from our God. So when you look upon your most recent journey in this life, what can you say about God? Think about it for a moment. What can you say about God recently? And then when you look upon the entirety of your life as a journey, what can you say about God? I love one of the songs that we sing here at WPA. And the lyrics go like this, all my life you've been faithful. And all my life you've been so, so good. And with every breath, catch that, with every single respiration, with every breath that I am able Oh, I'll sing of the goodness of God. 
See, it is the goodness and the faithfulness of God that brought you to himself. It is the goodness and the faithfulness of God that brought you home from a long wandering journey. It is the goodness and the faithfulness of God that brings you home each and every day. Friends, how can we travel so far and yet fail to give him the thanksgiving he deserves? If it had not been for the hand of God, where would you be today? Where would you be? As we conclude this morning and the worship team returns to the stage, I want, to, I want for us to think about a question. And I want to propose it before you today for reflection. And that question is, where is Jesus now? Think about that. Where is Jesus now? There might be many answers that come to our minds. Maybe let me refine this a little bit more, the question, to where did Jesus ascend? Of course, you'll say, Pastor, he went to heaven. But where in heaven? He went to be with his father. Of course he went to be with his father. But where is his father? The father is seated on the throne. Of course the father is seated on the throne. But where is Jesus in proximity to the throne of God? Luke, he captured the words of the deacon Stephen before he was murdered. In Acts 7.55 where it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus? Standing. At the right hand of God. After explaining the son's relationship to the father, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3, he stated, after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Where is Jesus? Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Apostle Peter, he confirmed this. In 1 Peter 3, verse 22, when he said, Him that is Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus is at the right hand. It's good news. With angels, authorities, and power all at his disposal. And let me just clarify one thing for you today. This is where Jesus was before his ministry on earth. And this is where Jesus is now after his ministry on earth. Always at the right hand of God. And I say all of this to say this, that Jesus was fully aware of the movement of God's hand. Every time God's hand moved, Jesus fully knew it. And Jesus was fully aware of the movement of God's hand upon Ezra's life and upon Ezra's ministry. See, with Ezra, the hand of the Lord was upon him. And with us, the hand of the Lord is also upon us. But may I say, even more so, because Jesus is positioned at the right hand of God the Father. That's so much better news for us. And he is there, he is interceding for us to the Father and he is there saying, Father, put your hand on my people. Father, put your hand on Chris. Put your hand on my friends here at WPA. Put your hand on this church. Because they're all mine. They believe in me, Father. 
They love me with their hearts, Father. Place your hand on them, and they will follow you all the days of their life. Let's pray.